Okay, now I'm going to be super distracted by the squiggle lines at the bottom. Yeah, now you can see how loud you're actually talking. Oh I like it. Compared I, to... Compared to last time, when it was like you're trying to figure it out on your microphone. <laughs> oh, yes, but I got it. It's working now. We all good. That's all that matters. We like it. Yeah, no, dude, this is nice. Oh, yeah. it's. I mean, it's, it's been too long since we've done it like this. Like, I, I liked our catch-up episode, but it's like, this feels more legit, like you and I, like, on the camera. Oh, yeah. I mean, historically, that's how we've done 19 out of 20 of our episodes. Exactly. 100%. This is like, this is my comfort level. This is what I'm used to. This is what you're used to. And uh, I just have to get this really cool setup like you do. If you send it to me, it is Amazon Prime Day. I forgot. Don't let me forget. I'll write a note right now. Like on your little little sticky note pound, be like, remind Katie to buy real podcasting equipment so we can be real podcasters. You know, because right now only half of us is a real podcaster. The other one's definitely talking to you through a computer microphone with um, some like $10 CVS headphones. So, <laughs> so I, okay. I, could, I, I could probably do a little better than this. We, we could up the game just a little bit. Hey, there's no guarantee that it would sound better. I don't know. I'm sure I'd be, like, uh, once again, computer speakers, $10 CVS headphones. I could probably up the audio quality just a little bit now that we're like, and, and look, we have two seasons of a podcast now. We officially have a podcast, a real <laughs> one. Like, like we're broken into seasons now, dog. Like, like yeah, but does it count if your season is just like, we went AWOL for a year? <laughs> we had a good reason for going AWOL. Like, there's plenty of people who, like, take an entire year off for no reason. Like, we took a... You got married. I was pregnant. I am no longer pregnant. But <laughs> we both moved. Yeah. Yes. You know, it's like there was a lot of stuff on our plate that we had to do. And yes. um, I'm impressed with us because we recorded what, like a week ago? Yeah. A week ago. And during that time, like we've had other things happen. Like I had a baby. And I Katie has a whole like new human in her house. I have a whole new human in my in my house, and she's like super cute, super into her. But um, whole new human in my house, and we still fulfilled our promise to get back to podcasting. So I just know, <laughs> way to go, us. You know, go yes. team. You know, we got a lot. Of- <laughs> go team. We're serious this time, guys. We're serious this time. Like my husband has, my husband and my mother-in-law have Charlotte in the room with them, so I can podcast. We have like a two-hour window before she's going to start screaming to be fat again. So we're good to go. <laughs> so we can definitely record in that amount of time. Let's get. Like, you want to go ahead and get the show on the road? I'm interested. Hell yeah. About today. Well, first I have to say, we're going to talk about science because my name is Erica and I am a scientist. And my name is Katie and I am not a scientist. And And this this is Southern Southern Science. Science. That's easier to do in person. That's, that is an easier thing to time in person. But like the rest of it, I think, I think we got it down. So what science are we learning about today, Erica? (laughs) So today we're going to learn about symbiosis. Like the, um... Like the biology class symbiosis? I mean, this is a science podcast, so yeah, a lot. Like the of, biology symbiosis? A lot of what we talk about is like the biology class. Well, okay, look, look, look. What I, I was thinking like. I don't know what you mean by that. Look, okay, you remember like, it was, I think it wasn't Miss Sykes, she was chemistry. Who was our biology teacher? Miss um, uh, Lee. Miss Lee. with the with the. So when I think symbiosis, are you talking about like the, the alligator burger? Like the burger that rocks around on the alligator and like. Sure, they're a good example. Got you. Okay, see, yeah, cowbirds, cowbirds. See, it's not often that you throw me a topic, and I'm like, wait, I remember that from like tenth grade biology class. But this is one of them. (laughs) This is exciting. Okay. (laughs) All right. So, what do we do with symbiosis? (laughs) So, technically, symbiosis can mean any form of close interaction between two or more species. It's usually used in a positive context. So I'm saying symbiosis kind of as a contrast to the episodes we did on parasitism. But actually, parasitism is a type of symbiosis because it is also a way in which two species interact closely with one another. So symbiosis is actually divided into different categories. And the one that you usually think of is like mutualism. So that's kind of what you were thinking of either mutualism or commensalism. So mutualism is where both species benefit. And then commensalism is where one species benefits and the other one doesn't really care. So in the alligator birds and and cowbirds example, depending on how much the alligator slash cow is getting out of the relationship, like if what the cowbird is eating is parasites that, you know, their removal benefits the cow, then that would be mutualism. If it really doesn't care, like it, it, these weren't 
insects that really bothered the cow that much, then it's commensalism. Fair. Okay. The other versions are amenalism, which is where one species is harmed and the other is unaffected. So I'm not sure what the point of that is. That just seems mean. Yeah, that's, just... that's really jerky. Like, that's a really mean thing to do. It's like a toxic relationship. You know what? Honestly. <laughs> like, straight up. Like, toxic, abusive relationship. All right. Another kind is neutralism, which means neither of the species is really affected. So I think that's just existing near each other, but technically it counts as a type of symbiosis. It's like your next really, door neighbor just... in an apartment that you never talk to? Yeah. Yeah. It's just hanging out. You know? Fair enough. Okay. Fair enough. And and then, of course, parasitism, which Pregnancy. is where one... <laughs> Where one species benefits and the other is harmed. Also known as pregnancy. Yeah. So, so technically. We'll die on that hill. Well, that, and that's the problem. That's kind of how this episode transitioned, unfortunately. So the whole point of me doing this was to celebrate your pregnancy and talk about it in a way <laughs> that would like spin it in a positive concept of like these are the good things about being pregnant and girl let me tell you i tried i tried so hard to find a list of good things about being pregnant and girl it's just not there like, like even the good things about being pregnant they take away so your hair gets longer that's fine once you have the baby it starts falling out again oh god like I it happens like it <laughs> We'll get to the lists, and I found I found a few lists, not many, but I did find a few, and they're pitiful. I tell you what, they're pitiful. <laughs> I want to know these lists. Well, yeah, okay. So I'm gonna sit here and count them off, and be like, right? Yes, uh huh, absolutely, sounds good. <laughs> Got that so, one. So, <laughs> so technically, technically, being pregnant is not a symbiotic relationship, technically, because. All the definitions I saw online is that it had to be members of different species. And so putting that aside for a second and the fact that technically pregnancy is a little bit more like a, an organ transplant than it is a symbiotic relationship. I mean, that's because... basically true. You grow your own organ. That's what a placenta is. Yeah. And it's own. not your own DNA. No. So it is kind of like an allograft, like a transplant you're getting from someone else. Fair. Which is one reason that your immune system tanks during pregnancy. Anyway, so my plan was to like go through the bad physiological effects of being pregnant and then see like the good side effects. And then we could decide if pregnancy was more symbiotic or mutualistic or parasitic. So for the bad, I came up with nausea and vomiting are very common. Yeah. Increased insulin sensitivity. So gestational diabetes, increased risk of pulmonary edema from preeclampsia. So you have your high blood pressure, your water retention, your swelling. And apparently that can be bad enough that you'll have blood leakage. Oh, you like can edema. have strokes. Yeah. You yeah. can stroke out. Part of stroking out is the fact that your body increases your ability to clot so that you don't hemorrhage and die during childbirth. The downside is you clot more easily and then you have like DVTs to worry about. <laughs> you have increased reflux and heartburn. Yeah, got that one. Yes. Increased are we, are we uh, so, on fingers as we go. Are, are you counting? It's <laughs> like the game where you put down the fingers, like never have I ever. Right. All right, continue. Right. Oh, in addition to the high blood pressure that goes with preeclampsia, though, you can also be anemic because your plasma volume goes up more than your red blood cell count does. So you can be anemic too. Love that. At the same time. That's fun. You can be constipated. Oh, you that, have bleeding a, gums. That doesn't stop either. Oh, the constipation. That's just yeah. your life. That's your life now. <laughs> Congratulations. You were on a fiber supplement forever. Congratulations. The bleeding gums, I didn't like because your I have can to fall out. I have teeth falling out nightmares all the time. That's like truly a nightmare. <laughs> it's a thing. Like, no, your teeth can fall out. I hate it. Mine didn't. I still have them, but you can. It's a side, it's a side effect. I hate it. Increased risk of sprains or dislocations because your ligaments are stretchier. That's true. You're more limber and you get really excited about it. And the first time you realize that your body can't actually do this, it's too late. <laughs> too late. Yep. I thought it was very amusing that the hormone that is responsible for making your ligaments relax so that you are stretchier um is called relaxin which <laughs> i didn't know that that's great it's literally just called relaxin and i'm like all right it makes me happy relaxin binds to the receptor chillin i what it we <laughs> i don't know 
<laughs> Hashtag science jokes. <laughs> and your cortisol levels are up to three times higher by your third trimester, which means you're physically stressed. Like your body thinks you're under constant, I'm being chased by a lion levels of stress. I mean, as the person who had to get in and out of bed at 45 pounds heavier and to go get water and pee 12 times a night, I would like to point out that um, the cortisol is not being dramatic. You are stressed. <laughs> it is just putting actual, like, like feelings <laughs> behind the stress. You are stressed. Yes. Your body is in a constant state of, this is a lot. This is dumb. We don't like it. We are done. By third trimester, you have no fear about childbirth because you're like, I don't care how it happens. I'm done being pregnant. We're finished. <laughs> we're done with this. <laughs> we're, we're done. This was a great experiment. It's over. Goodbye. <laughs> this is fun. You have some, some kind of neutral changes like peripheral vasodilation. So to, in order to keep your blood pressure from being super high, at first your blood vessels do relax and allow more blood flow. Uh, you have an increased metabolic rate, which if you weren't building a whole nother human could help you lose weight, increased cardiac output. So your heart is like pumping a little stronger. Those are kind of good. Those are actually what make you gain weight too. all that extra blood volume. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like seriously, the amount of just plasma alone that you gain is wild. And then just not to mention all of the problems that arise from just having an actual person living in your abdomen. Just hanging out. Yeah. Using all your nutrients. Yeah. There's no more room for breathing and peeing and all that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. Like, your your poor organs, like, get no heads up on the eviction notice from their areas. Zero. So what are the good ones? Hit me some of the good stuff. So the good ones, uh, like I said. I got a baby. You get a baby. Um, larger boobs, if that's a thing that you value. I would say I might have valued that. If it didn't come with the back pain side effect and the leaking. <laughs> yeah. The leaking and the back pain side effect, which in the leaking starts at about 28 weeks. Just for anybody paying attention, this uh, isn't the sort of thing that just happens when you have the baby. You start wearing nipple pads at 28 weeks. So, you know, <laughs> just throwing that out there. You know, and the, the back pain, you know, so. So, yeah. So, uh, I'll give you two examples of lists that I found that were meant to be lists of the good things about pregnancy. Love that. And... Unlike the other facts, which I could find from articles that were called like physical, physiological changes associated with pregnancy and were actual journal articles that listed the details of the changes in cardiac output and stuff like that. These would be a blog post on babymed.com that's there you go. called 10 positive pregnancy changes in women. But even though it's called 10 changes, the article, I'm sorry, the blog post only listed seven. Three of which, yeah. three of which were redundant, which was your skin's better, you're glowing, and your face looks younger. Yes. Those are kind of all the same thing. And they also said better hair and nails. But you lose those things. Right. Did they talk about that? They, they did. I mean. Your hair falls out. Yeah. When you're and done. clumps. <laughs> all, all that brand new pregnancy hair that you like. I'm losing it. They, like, they also did not mention that this could also partially, like, they, yeah, it could be due to increased blood flow. It could also be because you're taking better vitamins now. I'm still taking my vitamins. That's good, though. Oh, and of their seven items on their list of 10 things, one was sex dreams. Okay, yeah, yeah, no, I know exactly what that is. Yeah, but, like, is that a positive pregnancy change? I don't know. I don't know. You have some weird dreams when you're pregnant, man. That's, That's fair. Weird stuff. Anyway, so I was like, I'll try again. Because trust me, I scoured Google. I scoured journal sites. I scoured, like, oh, it's trying, girl. This is a really sweet thing I you tried. tried to do for me. I really appreciate it. And then, and then I found a list on babyinfo.com.au. Let's do it. Oh. Okay, Australian babies. Let's roll with it. Their positive things were, quote, enhanced endurance power, end quote. Things like, quote, being fit and active, end quote, because you have a responsibility to take care of your baby by running around with errands, doctor visits, shopping, and cleaning. So wait, wait, pause. So that is not how most people approach pregnancy. I was crazy fit during pregnancy because I was terrified of childbirth. And you did an amazing job. Thank you. But the mind mine had fear as a complete motivating factor. But their like their example was you'll be fit because you'll be busy cleaning up after your baby. They also listed as a positive 
what was this called? Oh, the art, the blog post was called body love, eight positive changes of pregnancy. And at least it was a list of eight things. I'll give them that. That's nice. That's good. That's the minimum level that I demand of a blog post. But if you say 10, give me 10. Yes. And then another thing that they listed was, quote, enhanced mental strength, end quote, because you can't take meds and you just have to suffer through any sort of pain that you go through. These were their positives. You will have to spend all of your time chasing an infant and you'll be in a lot of pain, but you can't do anything about it. So you will grow stronger mentally. Okay. Also chasing a baby has nothing to do with being pregnant because I'm not chasing anything while it's inside yeah. of me. Also, you're not chasing anything now. She does. She can, can't even really roll over that much. He's a pathetic, she, she tries. She tries so hard. I gave her a little bit of credit. I said that much. She can like she manage a little. She's a- She's a potato. But uh, uh, the meds thing is interesting. I mean, I will tell you the things you can't take and eat during pregnancy are very interesting. <laughs> um, and we should definitely, like, this is not funny, but this is an aside. We don't provide appropriately in this country or many countries for individuals suffering from severe mental illness who are pregnant. Mm-hmm. Basically, it's just deal with it. Yeah. If you want this baby, deal with it. And also, once you have this baby, we're going to take it away from you because you've been off your meds. Because you want this baby. So, yeah. So, you know, that's just an aside. But coming back to, you know, our, our humorous podcast, that was just my, like, PSA yeah. no. for anybody listening who actually wants to do something, like, you know, to help uh, <laughs> pregnant people in this country. But the med thing is real. I can have Tylenol about it. You can have, you can have Tylenol. Oh. Um, that's it. You can, you can have prenatal vitamins. You can have Tylenol. The and, end. Um, yeah, and if you if you ever have trouble sleeping, you can have a unisom. Okay. That's about all you got. <laughs> That's it. That's enough. That's all you got. That'll get We're you done. through all the aches and pains of pregnancy, no, you're right? You're fine. Take a Tylenol about it. Put a bandage on it. You're good. You're fine. It's fine. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> so that's fun. So we so does this mean we agree that pregnancy is parasitism? I mean, yeah, I found, okay, I found one thing. Okay. That one, which was that the more pregnancies you have, the less chance you have of getting ovarian cancer. Did they give like a graph as to how many pregnancies you need to have to not have ovarian I cancer? Think, I think with one, there is a statistical difference. How much? That I don't remember. I found it today, so, and I, I did mean, confirm this. I did look it up in cancer statistics. You can find this on American Cancer Society website, and when you look under risks for ovarian cancer and risk, decreased risk of ovarian cancer. So even though I initially saw that statistic on the Body Love blog post, that it that is like it, it that is a thing. I also saw okay. that pregnancy in some cases can decrease your risk of breast cancer, but that's only if you have your first child before the age of 20. And you have an increased risk of breast cancer if you have your first child after the age of 30. I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, like I was about to say that ship sailed a long time ago. (laughs) So like, you know, it's it is what it is. It's fine. But you also have a decreased risk of breast cancer the more children you have. And if you do have preeclampsia, so I don't know if like the trade is worth it at that point. Yeah, we're just gonna lop these off and get a new pair. Yep. If I get if I get there, we're just gonna like purchase the new pair, go from there. Yeah. Okay. So that's so honestly, yeah. girl. Like, yeah, I tried. I tried to have this episode about symbiosis with the intent, but like literally the last thing I was doing, like or like right up until go time today, I was trying to find websites that like tell me one positive thing, physiological changes that benefit from having this other person living literally inside you. And the internet could not help no. me. I'm not saying these people don't exist. And if you are one of those people listening who are like, screw you guys, I love being pregnant. Like, I love that for you. I love that for you. I'm so happy for you. I'm glad that's your experience. But I will say this, by and large, most of the people that I talk to, like, don't just come out and say it. But if you start talking to them, do not like being pregnant. It is not an enjoyable experience, right? Like, the baby's great. Like, mm-hmm. to be completely honest, I love being a new mom. Like, love my baby. Love hanging out with my baby. Like, super enjoyable experience. Love everything about it. But the whole, like, I love being pregnant, no.
I had to give you my baby, so we're back now. <laughs> yes. Katie has a baby attached to her now. Speaking of parasites. <laughs> Continue. All right. Honor like a leech. I'm telling you. Just like, that's how you lose that. It's how you lose those, like, pregnancy 15 or whatever. Your child just sucks the life out of you, literally. Oh. I know. She's precious and we love her. In all fairness, she's a beautiful baby. She's cute. She's pretty cute. But she's also past the, like, immediate baby phase. Like, we're at, like, the one-week, two-week phase where you're like, oh, okay, you look like a person now. You're not an alien. <laughs> a little more person-like, you know? She's a very smooshy face. It's very smooshy. Face. Very smooshy. She's she's all about the, like, real life, you know? And this is that crap. Like, I wish that, like, for adults, people are like, mm, love those leg rolls. Yes. <laughs> but, you know, a baby, people are like, ooh, love the leg rolls. With a, with a human, they're like, ooh. You got leg rolls. <laughs> like, stop leg shaming me. You just got to find a guy who's into that, I guess. I'm telling you, as a person with leg rolls. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sorry. Where were we? Um, I had a few other things that I found that were, like, not gr- good things about pregnancy, but I found a couple interesting facts. Hit me. One, I found that there's actually a change in the microarchitecture of your bones that helps them eat, be either stronger or more flexible or both. I couldn't really tell which, but their actual like structure of your bones changes. So I thought that was cool. That's neat. Is that, and that's from being pregnant? Mm-hmm. As you, yeah, it's part of the whole, like being able to shift your body to carry more weight kind of thing. Ooh, as your, as your hips enough. move and your spine, like I read that your spine, your lumbar spine goes from mostly staying at a 32 degree angle curving in at the small of your back to being at like a 50 degree angle <laughs> at the small of your back. What? Cause you walking around with your, I mean, that's true. Know? It's hundred percent true. You, you get, you get your waddle walk on. It's a thing, the waddle walk. And I did one of the things I, I wanted to say was I did actually find a paper that analyzed the waddle it's called a bio sorry a biomechanical analysis of gait during pregnancy it was a 2000 paper from the journal of bone and joint surgery love that so i was like people have really studied the waddle i mean it's a thing it's a much more comfortable way to walk it's an important thing because your center of gravity is all wrong now (laughs) yeah anything can make you fall over when you're pregnant actually yes and that was another thing i didn't put it in my my slides but i did see that not only like you anything actually can make you fall over and it's not just your center of mass being changed pregnant women just standing there sway more than non-pregnant people and pregnant people have a perceived degree of unsteadiness like they rank themselves as being less stable even before they've got a you know, statistically significant switch in their center of mass. So that is like the literal steadiness is different. So I would believe that a hundred percent. Another thing that for some reason people study. Yeah. I mean, like shoot, people study a lot of things about pregnant people. You can't actually use them in clinical trials, but people do like to study them. (laughs) That's fair. And then my last fun fact about pregnancy was just the sheer numbers of the fact that after birth, your uterus goes from having a 10 liter volume to having a five milliliter volume. I didn't know that. Wild. I have pictures. I'm going to show you of the progression of my body over the last seven days. Cause you know, you leave the hospital looking six months pregnant. I saw your like immediate, like in the hospital comparison, but I did. Yeah. yeah. But that was like, I've got one, like a recent one since then. It's been, I've, I've been documenting that because it's been pretty interesting. I'll get, I'll send you the pictures so you can post them just because it wow. is interesting. Like the body changes that happen. You're like, man, the human body is cool, dude. It's like a very efficient machine. It's like, okay, we're no huh. longer pregnant. Let's fix all of this and put all of your weight into your boobs. Cause you have to feed something. <laughs> yep. Yeah. That's exactly how this goes. Well, that ended up being a very poor example of symbiosis. I didn't manage to uh, make the point I was intending, but to be fair, hypothesis. That's okay. That's what science is about. Yeah, I I disproved that that portion of my (laughs) hypothesis. But again, pregnancy only slightly counts because technically it's two individuals of the same species. But if you were thinking about what's another example in your life of symbiosis or specifically mutualism, you might consider pets. So having. Having pets does count because they're individuals of different species who live in your house. And depending on what you derive out of the relationship, it can be either commensalism or mutualism. 
or technically just neutralism, the coexistence of you have a cat that just kind of like hangs out and you hang out. So basically me and Brie. Yeah. We have a neutralism relationship. Yeah. Yeah. With Brett, it's a mutualism relationship. But with me, it's definitely a <laughs> neutralism relationship. We both just exist in the same house and she doesn't pay rent. Yeah. So I'd even say it airs on the side of parasitism, but whatever. <laughs> I start to pay for her vet bills. That's fair. So historically, what led to the development of having pets is more of a mutualistic relationship because dogs, you know, historically could help us hunt. Cats could keep our homes and food stores free of vermin. And even more like non-standard pets like birds or horses, those also historically could help us hunt or catch food or... Horses work. Yeah, horses work. And like you said, people hunt with birds. And we also keep pets to protect us. Fair. Or because they make us happy. And if you count joy as a benefit, then that also can lead to a mutualistic resolution. 100% joy is a benefit. That's why we all have uh, <laughs> like the dogs that we have. Like, let's not pretend that the animals that we have, Erica, would help us at all in the event of the apocalypse. Not, not much. I mean, ghost looks intense. No, Bertha would make it. The rest of us would die. <laughs> Bertha would make it because nothing can kill Bertha. Nothing can kill Bertha. Bertha's my 17-year-old rescue beagle and, like, was a street dog and um, nothing can kill her. She's fine. I usually say, you know, I, I love having Ghost around. I love his companionship. And then he just, like, pees on the carpet in my office and, I mean, you know. We have them for we have them exactly. We have them because they're cute and for joy. So that that's a good <laughs> example of mutualism. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, that would be that would make sense. Yeah, I guess that's a better example than the alligator birds I was talking about. Well, I mean, both both are true, but I was going to say humans aren't the only species that keeps other animal species as pets. And I'm not just talking about like, you know, Coco the gorilla famously had kittens or when a family adopts of one species adopts another species like, you know, ugly duckling style or your basic Tarzan scenario. And technically, I'm not even talking about when cheetahs in zoos make friends with service dogs to help with their anxiety. I was just about to say with that one, (laughs) cheetahs and service dogs. That That is probably either mutualism or commensalism, uh, depending on, on what the dog's getting out of the relationship. But it is a very artificial environment, so I wouldn't really give it as a natural example. But as an aside, I do want to say I've always considered that relationship a, a fairly accurate metaphor for our friendship because I feel like the anxious cheetah and I feel like you are my exuberant, you know, golden, golden retriever, retriever friend. <laughs> Like, come on, buddy, let's go do things. You can do <laughs> it. And the cheetah's like, I don't know. <laughs> like, you can do it. You can do it, anxious cheetah friends. That's actually a really good point. <laughs> but a better example, you know, that's more similar to how humans have, say, guard dogs, is the dotted humming frog of South America and the Colombian lesser black tarantula. And that tarantula actually is, it. it yeah? Who's the pet? So the frog is the pet. Really? Now to to humans this tarantula is a pet. It's a very it's one of those big hairy ones that's a one popular of the cute ones. yeah. Pet. One of the cute if you need to have a spider as a pet, I that's not for me. That's okay. <laughs> not a spider person. Fair. But whatever. But no, the frog is like the pet of the tarantula. So they both live in the tarantula's burrow which gives the humming frog protection from predators and also the frog gets to eat any insects that are attracted to the tarantula's leftovers, so like remains of its prey or whatever. And then the frog will eat ants that try to attack and eat the tarantula's eggs. Oh, like a guard dog, except a yes. guard frog. <laughs> it's a guard frog. And so you you may have seen this like as a meme going around the internet that culminates in the phrase, tiny frogs are tarantula cats which sounds like a wild phrase but i mean it's true they'd serve a very similar purpose of keeping dangerous vermin away from the tarantula's home and this is actually a surprisingly widespread relationship so observations of this relationship between the frogs and the tarantulas it was first published in 1989 in the journal called biotropica by crocapt and hambler and This has actually been observed in Peru, in Sri Lanka, and in India, at least. 
and may involve actually multiple tarantula species and multiple microhylid frog species. A microhylid is just like this classification I'm of. I'm looking this up. I'm not saying I don't believe you, but I'm I'm looking it's this okay. up. All right, continue. You can generally find them referred to as microhylid frogs, which means narrow mouthed. But the humming frog is one of the ones that gets the most press. Humming frog. And it was really interesting. So people have studied this in, in rather odd ways because it is a very interesting. <laughs> What's up? I'm just <laughs> laughing at the pictures of tarantulas keeping frogs as pets. You see like a big old tarantula and then a teeny little frog standing like between its legs. <laughs> Basically. And you're like, okay, so this is cool. All right, continue. This is really cute, so, actually. People have wanted to study this relationship. They ride them, too. What ride? <laughs> like the frogs ride the tarantulas like observe wow now that's adorable i know right you're like this is actually pretty cute all right continue so this is pretty neat so yeah like i said people have studied this because it's a super interesting relationship that why would you think that you know frogs and spiders are hanging out together but again this is observed on multiple continents and with multiple species of tarantula and multiple species of frogs now the frog species that are most often involved in this are the microhylid frogs which are toxic and so it's not really been determined like if that's why the tarantulas don't eat them it could be because the tarantulas definitely eat frogs of a similar size but even if you couldn't eat them doesn't mean that you would establish a mutualistic relationship with them but it's interesting because the spiders have actually been observed identifying the frogs by picking them up and then kind of like examining them with their mouth parts and then just like saying, no, that's my friend and putting them back down. So you'll see young tarantulas do that, like maybe when they don't recognize the frogs. And so that's amazing. The problem is they so the there were researchers that wanted to make sure that it was actually recognition through chemicals in the skin that was allowing the tarantulas to recognize the frogs. So there was a researcher named Jolene Kazansky, and she confirmed that the tarantulas were using skin chemicals from the frogs to recognize them in the creepiest way possible by skinning one of the humming frogs and putting its skin onto a frog that the tarantula would normally eat. And then the tarantula picked up the frog, the, you know, the leather face frog, then put it back down and chose not to eat it because it thought it was its friend. What is wrong with scientists, dude? <laughs> what is wrong with you people? So I didn't... So you murdered the tarantula's pet and dressed another frog in its skin? Yeah. What is wrong with scientists, <laughs> I, man? No. I don't know, man. That one, I was like, that's the creepiest way you could have done that experiment. Like, this is the game. Scientists are serial killer. I was like, we didn't try rubbing the like getting a Q-tip and rubbing it on the microhylid frog and then rubbing that onto the other frog and seeing if maybe you could transfer transfer oh, some chemicals mm. or pheromones or something. No, no, we just went take the skin of the humming frog and put it on another frog. We're going to play that game in October, Scientist or Serial Killer. <laughs> we'll make it, yeah, Yikes. we'll play that game. Anyway, shout out to a 2009 blog post on scienceblogs.com by Tetrapod Zoology that had a really nice summary of a lot of the research that's been done on this relationship between tarantulas and frogs. Except for the crazy person who decided Except to like... <sighs> All right, yeah. Jolene. And I shouldn't say crazy person, but oh my gosh, Jolene. Yeah. Continue. Don't make that frog be a leather face. Like, oh my gosh, that's so inappropriate. I know. So but there are life. other protection-based mutualistic relationships in nature. One that's really probably well-known, thanks to you know, your basic Finding Nemo relationship, is clownfish and anemones. I didn't know that one. Yes. So basically, you can split all sea life into two groups. Those that are bothered by anemone stings and those that aren't. And the anemone will take care of the first group. And clownfish are very territorial and will take care of the second group. Heyo. And so when they live together, it's fairly peaceful. There's a similar relationship between limpets, which are mollusks, and scale worms, which are worms. Uh, like the clownfish, these worms are uh, highly territorial and live in the mollusk's shell and will also try and attack anything that tries to eat the mollusk. Which is helpful. Yes. And finally, another example I saw was mites, you know, little tiny insects, and potter wasps. 
The mites will live in the wasp's nest. The wasps can even carry the mites around sometimes with them and protect them from other insects. And this to me was just proof that wasps could have pleasant partnerships with other insects and don't have to zombify them into being guards and hosts and food. So wasp are the worst, man. That the other wasps are choosing to have that relationship because I would agree. This shows they could have mutualistic relationships if they wanted to. I would agree. I have zero sympathy for squishing wasps <laughs> anymore after our parasite episode. I murdered them all. <laughs> you will be held accountable for the actions of your brethren. Yeah. Wasps were the villain in like half of those episodes. So. It's true. But that kind of leads us into what you brought up to begin with, which was food partnerships. So your cowbirds and cows, cleaning shrimp and fish that have parasites, even ravens and wolves. Sometimes they hunt together. Yeah. They can um, both share in a kill. A fun one of those food-based mutualistic relationships that I learned about recently was drongos, D-R-O-N-G-O-S, drongos, which is an African bird, and meerkats. And some people may know about this because it was featured in the BBC documentary called Africa. Anyway, it's interesting because it's a little different. The drongos act as lookouts for the meerkats and they warn meerkats to go back to their burrows when a predator is approaching. And sometimes when that happens and the meerkats are rushing to go back to their burrows, they will drop the food that they're holding. So the drongo gets to eat that. So that's that's a good relationship, but then apparently the drongo takes it a little bit further and that sometimes they literally cry wolf in that they will make a fake cry and get the meerkats to run away and drop their food and then the drongo gets to eat that food. So does this still count as a mutualistic relationship? As a whole, I think it still does. It's like, you know, ghost living here is still a mutualistic relationship, even if he does pee on my carpet sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes you don't have the best partner, but overall it helps. Overall, they're not jerks. And the meerkats still don't get eaten by predators, even if they do lose a little bit more food than they have to. Plus, I'm pretty sure the number one cause of meerkat death is other meerkats. I think they're very homicidal. That's true. true. Yeah, yeah. Meerkats have like issues with like everybody and everything, including other meerkats. Yeah. I didn't know that actually. So in addition to animals partnering with other animals, you can also find animal and plant symbiotic relationships, such as woolly bats that nest inside of pitcher plants. So the woolly bats get to climb to into the top of the pitcher plant and have a safe little home there. And then in return, the pitcher plant gets nutrients from the guano from eat. the bat. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's nice. Bat poop. Yeah. And there's a similar relationship with pitcher plants and shrews. The shrews don't actually climb down into the pitcher plant because if they do, they will also be digested. I've seen that some pitcher plants can eat rodents. But theoretically, the shrew will go climb up onto the pitcher plant and get to eat the nectar from it. And then while it's balancing on the edge of the pitcher plant, just kind of poop into it. And then the plant gets nutrients that way. Helpful. Yeah. Even if it does sometimes end badly for the shrews. That's the even if sometimes the shit. <laughs> if you fall in, you die. That's just the risk that you take. You knew what this was going into it, sir. But that kind of led me to thinking about extending this, you know, symbiotic relationship to the bacteria that live in our digestive tract. So that's a symbiotic relationship. They digest in a food context, you know, they digest some of the food that we can't eat and then give us chemicals that affect our cell metabolism, our immune system, gene expression, wound healing, all kinds of stuff. The the gut that's in your, sorry, the the bacteria that's in your gut is super helpful and plays a huge role in every part of your daily functioning. And they also, that's why we actually cultivate it. Like, you know, like take probiotics and stuff like that. Yes. You can take probiotics. Yeah. If you run out of your good bacteria, then you could get someone else's and a fecal transplant if it's absolutely necessary. If you have to do it, you can. Yes. As long as you can do it by enema and not smoothie. Oh, God. Oh, that's a good point. Still not fun. I have good gut bacteria. I don't have to worry about that. Thank goodness. You're good. Bacteria in your gut, they also secrete vitamins, which, in case you were wondering, includes vitamin B12, folate, biotin and other things but like folate and biotin like i know you've been taking a lot of both of those a lately ton. So. b12 is what they tell you to take when you have nausea oh yeah so your gut bacteria needs to step it up 
apparently. Folic acid is the one thing that's a huge deal when you're pregnant. Yeah. I know that's like the main thing that separates prenatal vitamins from your standard multivitamin. Yeah. And the fact that like prenatal vitamins are better gummies. Let's like, let's be completely honest. They're delicious. Girl, I had some years. They're good. They're good, that's right? Those are vitamins. That's candy. <laughs> that was delicious, right? Like, you know, as a side note, when I went to Erica's bachelorette party, uh, because we're old, we ended up passing around Tums, prenatal vitamins, and uh, ibuprofen because, you know, by eight o'clock, it's hard to be alive at 33. It's tough, man. Yeah. We party hardy. Oh, we did. And it was really good. By party hardy, I mean go pet baby animals at a nature preserve and then go eat seafood. <laughs> and then eat prenatal. And then make sure we took our tums and prenatal vitamins because, I mean, it was fried seafood. So, oh, yeah, just in case. Yeah, you got to make sure you're safe. Okay, yeah, good stuff. It was a good time. Okay, so back to what we were talking about. My bad. Just had to do the aside because it's like you've no, had those. You're good as heck. Oh, yeah. Speaking of the, the bacteria in your gut, just because this is always an astonishing statistic that people enjoy, the number of microorganisms that live in your GI tract has been estimated to exceed 1 times 10 to the 14th, which is a huge number. Is that like a billion? It's way more than a billion. Oh, I don't know. I don't know what 10 to the 14th no, I think, is. I think, I think it's in the trillions. Oh, I'd, I'd, I'd have to count it out. One, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, fourteen, fourteen, two, three, comma, one, two, three. Nope. Comma, one, two, three, four, comma. So it's a hundred <laughs> trillion. A hundred trillion. That's impressive. It's a lot of gut bacteria. Yes. And you know what? Now, now that you say that, that makes sense. Cause I, I remember the numbers on the probiotic bottle and I was like, oh, that's just dramatic. No, it's, yeah. But I guess it's not. I guess it's true. A hundred trillion bacteria in your gut. They have over a hundred times the amount of genomic content that all of your human cells do. Yay. And your human cells are more complex. <laughs> okay, well, that's fascinating. All right, so we've got some, like, you know, probiotic, like, symbiotic relationship with, like, gut bacteria. And that's a mutualistic relationship. Yes, because they get food. I mean, we eat things that the bacteria gets to digest that we couldn't digest. A lot of plant materials we can't digest. Fair. It's more than 10 times as many bacterial cells as human cells and over 100 times as much genetic content. So it's wild. Anyway. Fascinating. But speaking of cool symbiosis with bacteria, we have finally reached the organism that inspired this episode. Besides... My baby. But besides pregnancy, I tried to work it into a symbiosis themed episode because of your baby, but <laughs> that didn't work out. But I did learn about this really cool animal when I was at a conference last November. Anyway, I went to a meeting for the American Society for Gravitational and Space Research, ASGSR, and one of the people was talking about examining how symbiotic relationships with bacteria might fare in space. You know. Oh, fancy. I forgot. Yeah, it's because you work for NASA. But I get paid by NASA. I get paid by NASA. <laughs> I, I work for, you know, university, but my money ultimately comes from NASA. Anyway, I get to go to the cool NASA-related meetings. So. Which is fancy. All right, fair enough. Yes, it's very cool. And this organism that I wanted to talk about has actually been used for a couple decades as a model organism when studying symbiotic relationships with bacteria because it offers a very clear readout for that was a really cute yawn. Yeah, she yawned really big. It was really <laughs> cute. She made a little bump on my soundboard. We're podcasting, oh. baby. Anyway, so I wanted to talk about the Hawaiian bobtail squid which is also called Euprimna scolopes, but I'm just going to call them bobtail squid. Fancy. Okay. So this squid mostly hides during the day and hunts for food at night. And if you remember in the last episode, we talked about a lot of sea animals with counter coloration where they Yes, are... we did. I remember that. I know it was like a year ago, but. No, but I just recently listened to all of our podcasts again. Oh. I was nice. like catching up, like preparing. <laughs> So countercoloration helps a lot of sea animals be less visible in the ocean in that they are light on the bottom so that when seen from below, they kind of blend in with the light that's way <laughs> up above. And they're dark colored on top so that they, you know, when seen from above, they blend in with the dark ocean floor beneath them. Which is brilliant. Yes, it's very convenient. But this guy 
takes it to the next level with counter illumination. So the Hawaiian bobtail squid has eyes that aren't exactly normal eyes. They have an iris and a lens and opsin pigments of a sort, but what they actually have are light organs. And inside of the light organs are a bioluminescent bacteria called Vibrio fisheri. Okay. So this is, this is an active colonization that the squid does during the first few hours of its life. And it has these little appendages, which are basically like specialty mucousy epithelia that will actively draw in particles of anything that's bacteria-sized into the light organs, like into the surface level of the light organs. And then it has chemicals that will select for the right kind of bacteria. So it will kill off any bacteria that aren't the Vibrio fisheri, which is probably a lot of them because the, this particular bacteria only makes up like less than 0.1% of the bacteria in that region. Which makes it a little rude. So you're calling them in here and then you're murdering all but like 0.1% of them. Right. Right. So the bacteria didn't know that they were in the wrong spot. Should have advertised differently. It's like, that's like some bacteria eugenics. (laughs) So once the proper bacteria is kind of stuck on these epithelial cells, they migrate, the bacteria migrate into the cavities of this light organ. And when the bacteria reaches a high concentration, they start to glow. And they only do this really when they reach a high concentration. And this is through a method called quorum sensing. Now, quorum sensing gets an entire population of organisms to do something at the same time, kind of coordinated. And basically, it just means that each of the individuals secretes a chemical and that chemical builds up. And so the more organisms that are present the more concentrated that chemical becomes. And then once it reaches a certain concentration, it's a signal that everyone needs to do the thing. Okay. So that's how individual organisms like bacteria can coordinate and do something all at the same time. Fancy. Okay. Which in this case is glow. So the bacteria glow more when they're in this light organ than they would just like on their own in the ocean because they're not very concentrated in the ocean. Fair. So what happens also whenever this quorum is reached, the bacteria then release signals to the squid that influences the maturation of the light organ. So the squid is also responding to signals from the bacteria. And the light from this bacteria shines through the muscles and skin of the squid down through the bottom of it. And it makes the squid look like moonlight like stars like it hides oh wait a minute what's this called on it's a hawaiian bobtail squid and it the squid can change how the patterning is the light organ is actually surrounded by the squid's ink sacs so the ink that's behind the light organ causes the light to reflect out and reflect and shine down and then the ink sac that is in front of the light organ the squid can actually girl i heard that thunder yeah Over your microphone, that's wild. Anyway, the ink sacs that's in front of the light organ can contract like an iris and either hide the light or make more light. And it acts like like an eye, except like like a reverse eye that's emitting the light instead of receiving the light. This is so cool. Also, the so the squid can detect the amount of light and kind of control the amount that's being sent out, being displayed through the bottom of the squid. And it does that to sense the ambient light levels and then match that with, you know, how much light it's letting through. But also the ability to detect the light from the the light organ allows the squid to get rid of any, quote, dark mutants, which are bacteria that want to take up residence but not glow because the glowing does take energy. And so sometimes you'll get bacteria that are like, no, thanks. I'm just going to sit here and right and get the, you know, the protection and the nutrients and all that sort of stuff. But the, the squid's not having that. And it'll just kind of like eject the bacteria and start over. That's great. <laughs> 
And this is a very symbiotic relationship, and the, the squid depends on the colonization by these bacteria to fully develop. Whoa. In fact, I read a meeting abstract by Rader and Heath Heckman, which was for a meeting of the Society for Integrative and Comparative Biology, that nearly 2,000 genes in the light organ are differently regulated as a result of colonization with the bacteria. So, and the categories of genes that are differentially expressed are microtubules and other genes that are involved in the maintenance of cilia. So like how, how the cells can move and exchange the bacteria and whether or not there's more bacteria coming in. And then also went and notch signaling pathways. And those are involved in cell development, cell identity, fate determination. So these are really crucial. Like the fact that the bacteria are there is crucial for the squid to even finish developing much less be able to survive via camouflage that is fascinating and these species are so closely symbiotic that they are sometimes termed a holobiont or a meta-organism which is like two species that work so closely together you don't even see them without one another so like so like fusion from like dragon ball yes. z they have now become That's one. Even humans can be considered a meta organism because of all the bacteria that live in us. And these two, like they're considered so ecologically cool. obligate because you don't find these squids without the bacteria in them. That is freaking cool. And they look so neat. I highly recommend anybody like go look that up. They have like YouTube videos and stuff of them up this too, of them like, you know, glowing. And it's really cool to look at. And, oh, I would want to say, it's really interesting. So during the day when they're hiding, you don't want them to be glowing, even if normally the glowing is like on their underside and the, the squid will yeah. go and bury itself in the sand. And I think it can actually like, it gets the sand to stick to its skin. So it hides even better. Squids, but, are, squids are gnarly, man. They're squids so are wild. Gnarly. But also to avoid the light organ getting too crowded, actually each morning when the squid goes to sleep by burying itself in the sand the squid actually vents out the majority of the bacteria into the surrounding water and then while it hides in the sand the remaining bacteria replicates to fill the light organ again and start glowing again about dusk whenever it's time for the squid to wake up and start going around hunting for things and you're like fascinating you're like way to go squid it's very very cool and like cool. i said like I said, I have learned about this because he's a very common model organism to study bacterial symbiosis. And so people are using him kind of to study the way that humans gut microbiota might Behave. respond to different situations. Most recently of which was space travel, irradiation, zero gravity, things like that. But it's been used as a model for a long time. And you're like, whoa. And I did want to shout out my sources on that section for the squid, which was Oceania.org, Biointeractive.org, and a YouTube video called Nature's Cutest Symbiosis, the Bobtail Squid. Okay, see, so of all the sources, that's the one I want you to send to me so I can look at it. <laughs> it's cute. NationalGeographic.com, a quick guide in cells, current biology section by Margaret McFall-Nagai, and a 2021 review in Nature Nature Review Microbiology by Nyholm and McFall Nagai. So same lady. Sure. But yeah, I just wanted to shout out my sources because Bobtail Squid was super cool. And he was kind of the inspiration that triggered this episode, even if I did try to make it more about symbiosis in general <laughs> and failed to include pregnancy in that list. Dude, you tried. To to, I tried. I mean, like, I was expecting know, the internet to be a lot more positive about pregnancy. I feel like I feel like most people who have been pregnant find it very difficult to like embrace the positivity of pregnancy. The point of pregnancy is that you get this amazing little nugget at the end of it and you're like, oh, babies are cool. And then you basically just get to kind of like slowly grow your own human. That's cool. Right? Like, like but... I currently have a human I can like train, like my own human. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. But and she's the, cute, and it's cool the, you got her, but, like, the symbiotic stage was really... Yeah, the building of the human was, was not what I would consider a mutualistic relationship. It was definitely more parasitic. Yep. Yeah. But that counts as symbiotic, technically. Exactly. See, so, so you did do a good job finding something symbiotic. You just didn't find something mutualistic. Mutualistic. Right. You know, which is fine. Which is fine. You know, we can do a little parasitic relationship. Yeah. Grow it, like... 
Building your, like, having your own human is cool. Building it is not. Fair. Yeah, that's how it works. So, yeah. Okay, so what else we got about symbiosis? That was it. Those were my main uh, main points. I really like how we ended on a cute animal as opposed to, like, something terrifying. So much yes. you know, I appreciated that, like, desperately. I thought for sure you were going to hit me with something terrifying. No, bobtail squid is cute. Bobtail squid, squid is so cute. Everybody go YouTube that right now. YouTube the bobtail squid bacteria relationship because organs. it's adorable. It's so cute. And it's light organs. Oh, my God. I love a little bobtail squid. So, yeah. Okay. So, I mean, I'm sad because, like, we haven't, like, done this in so long. And I'm like, I know this isn't, like, an hour-long episode. But I'm also really sad it's over. So, like, so I mean, I, like, no, I, mean, I, I do want to end on, like, a mental health minute. Yeah, of course. You you have one earlier that you... Oh, yeah. So, okay. So, my mental health minute, of course, I just finished nine and a half uh, months of pregnancy. Because pregnancy is not nine months. It is closer to ten. Um, no one thinks people don't tell you. Did not touch. Um, and one of the things that I think is really important to focus on is that while society might tell you otherwise, you are not obligated <laughs> to like every aspect of yourself while you're pregnant or as a mom. Um, there is something really interesting. I've been in a lot of mom groups, a lot of pregnancy groups, and there is a lot of shame surrounding pregnancy, being pregnant and um, having kids, which is this idea that you have to like every second of it. And that's mm-hmm. definitely a lie. I am new to the mom game. So currently I am liking every second of it, but I'm also fortunate enough to where I completely miss the postpartum depression um, and postpartum anxiety. And overall, like Erica sitting here looking, I have a pretty easy baby. You know, she doesn't have colic. Nothing's she's wrong chilling. with her. Yeah. She's literally just chilling against me while we're recording this podcast. Um, but I'll be the first person to say, I did not enjoy being pregnant. I did not feel a connection with my baby when I was pregnant um, it was definitely a means to an end. And um, up until I had her, I did have some anxiety about, <laughs> did I make a mistake? <laughs> Am I even going to like this? Um, luckily, it all worked out. And I absolutely love her. She's fantastic. But um, that shame that comes, you know, and like, you know, motherhood, uh, definitely take time for yourself and realize it's completely normal if you don't have those really strong maternal instincts while pregnant or even like when you first have the baby. Like, you know, mm-hmm. I think that's ridiculous. People are like, oh, it just happens. Like, it happens for some people. And then some people are like, oh, my God, I have a human that I'm responsible for. And that's fine, too. You know? There's a little bit of a biological switch being flipped, but it doesn't have to happen the same way for everyone. No. And you know what? If it doesn't happen for you, that's fine. They make great meds for that. Go talk to your doctor. Like, great meds. <laughs> the best meds. Yes. So, yeah. So, that's where I am this week. You know, de- delving into motherhood and just being thankful as all get out that I no longer am in a parasitic relationship with my child. <laughs> so happy. I mean, I don't know that you're not technically still in a parasitic relationship with your child. Like she's pretty cool right now, but like ask, tell me again in like 16 years, if you think that's, well, not true. Sure. that's true. You might revisit this podcast episode in 16 years. But <laughs> no, the parasite comes back. Mutualism goes yeah. away. The parasite comes back. All right. Continue. <laughs> And we're going to continue because this is a good point and we're not going to fix on it too, Donk. Yeah. No, that that's great. And I, I don't want to uh, say too much. I was just thinking about, I guess in the same lines of not letting people tell you how to feel about things. You may notice this is our first episode after a full year of being absent. And while we did have a lot of life updates, a lot of that was... I just couldn't bring myself to like finish editing the last few episodes and there was just a lot of stuff going on and I, you know, feel bad about that. I know we don't have a lot of like listeners to disappoint or anything, but I guess all I wanted to say was it's never too late to look back in and get back in on something that you enjoyed. And just because you took a break doesn't mean you have to be done forever. I, you know, not too long ago, I drew a picture of one of my D&D characters, and it was literally the first time I'd drawn anything in eight years. And I was like, just because you take a break doesn't mean that you can't still go back and say, oh, you know what, I really used to like doing that. I should probably get back at it. So just uh, think of something that you used to like to do and see if you're still there. See if you still like to do it. You might find, you know... Something that you thought was like, oh, I've outgrown that. No, you might still like it. That's actually a fantastic idea. (laughs) Shoot, I might try to draw something. I was never good at drawing, but I used to like to do it. (laughs) Yeah, you don't have to be good. Who are you being good for? 
Yeah, exactly. She was like being good for my baby. My baby will be very impressed. She'll be like, you did there a great job. Now feed me. Yeah. It's going to be like five years before she even makes handprint art. Exactly. I mean, yeah. And then I have to be really excited about the handprint macaroni art. So you can be excited you about too. my picture. I do. You have to be <laughs> excited about it. <laughs> okay. Well, guys, it was great. Uh, to be, it's great to be back into it. Um, I'm looking forward to all the things I know Erica has prepared for us. I'm looking forward Yay. to learning some more science. And I'm hoping like through like i guess like psychic powers or something maybe this will imprint on charlotte and maybe i have another like future scientist because yeah. she's definitely not going to get that part from me because i my name is katie and i am not a scientist it's okay i am a scientist and i'll help charlotte uh if she wants to pursue stem i will try to be the best resource for her that i can be which is fantastic cause, like again She's not getting it from me. Liberal arts all the way, baby. Okay. <laughs> we'll talk to y'all next week. Um, this is Katie and Erica. We're signing off. Bye. Bye. <laughs>